All right, welcome back to the Keeper's Debrief. As you can hear, uh, I find myself now um, ahead of the players a little bit in a tent on the Antarctic ice. I've uh, camped here uh, to get ready for their arrival, and I thought I would spend a little time walking through session six, which um, I've thankfully um, so far not lost the recording to. So that's something, and I hope that um, I can get it uploaded before I manage to lose it. So finally, we get to some action. Uh, obviously, we had some action in the previous session, session five, which dealt primarily with the leaving New York, crossing the line, and handing us the saboteur and catching him. And session six has um, uh, primarily been around um, interviewing Henning, and oh my god, I have a cat that just jumped up and is perched on top of my cinema display. I'm not, I'm not sure how that's even possible. I'm going to try and take a photo of this, and you can be, oh, she jumped down. Um, these are the kinds of things that happen when you're recording live. The only way to do it. No, it's actually the only way to do it. Um, so session six was about um, following up on the Henning case, getting to Melbourne, and having a little time there for people to kind of fill in uh, their characters um, as more than just uh, puppets to deal with uh, saboteurs and, and, and the like. And then we moved on from there and sailed south into a, a storm and then obviously um, uh, the engines uh, ripped loose and were tearing through the, the hull and finally when that was dealt with uh, the ship arrived at um, the Wallaroo. We didn't deal with the Wallaroo, but um, we arrived there. This time we were four players. Um, we've lost the journalist, Thomas McLugal, uh, and I think we might have lost the uh, wealthy um, the wealthy British uh, archaeologist as well. Both of those people who are playing those uh, characters unfortunately have uh, children and busy lives and so forth, so I think they're I mean, they might, they might um, appear again, but, um, but I think the core group we have right now is actually really good. Um, these are people that are dedicated to the game, they're dedicated to role-playing, and, and I think they're really getting into the story, and so that, that makes me super happy. And they're also, um, three of them are, are very long-time friends of mine, and one of them, David, is uh, it's a fairly new friend. Um, David, um, you know, who is, moves around, he's in Germany now, he's in Korea. Um, He's in the Air Force, and it's just great to meet people who are kind of like-minded and, and really dedicated to, to helping tell a story and, and make a great narrative and, and, um, and so forth. Anyway, um, here are some of the thoughts I had on, on this last session. Um, I think first of all, at the top, um, I should probably talk about, I think I've mentioned this before, the fact that um, I chose to run this game with Trail of Cthulhu rather than Call of Cthulhu, and the reason I did that was I I don't I don't really like the basic role-playing game system. I can I can deal with it, and I think it's it's very old school, uh, a little old-fashioned even, and um, I wouldn't be opposed to running the campaign with that. But I feel like when I look at um, Trail of Cthulhu and the way that it kind of engenders uh, role-playing, it um, the way it's written, uh, the way it's laid out, I mean everything through the art style and the way that it kind of tries to, to lure you into Lovecraft's world is so much more enticing to me than Call of Cthulhu has ever been. Um, and I love Call of Cthulhu, it's, it's a phenomenal game and as, as Ken Haidt writes in, in Trail of Cthulhu, it's the best game ever made. Um, but uh, I, I do feel like uh, coming back into role-playing, it, it just feels old-fashioned. Even with the 7th edition rules, I, I feel like it's, it's, um, it's bloated. It's um, it, the, the core rulebook for 7th edition is enormous. And honestly, what I want from, from Call of Cthulhu is much less than what they give. I, I, if I could get a, an even smaller rulebook, I would, I would prefer that, like even smaller than the one that Trail of Cthulhu has. 
there's so much in there that I'm just never going to use, that I'm never going to, um, uh, in the Call of Cthulhu rule books, uh, like the chase rules, I, I don't see myself really uh, wanting to use those. If a chase occurs, then I want the, the least amount of rules to interfere with that, but just enough that it adds some tension and, 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 and play, like the, the player characters are actually represented in some way in the system. Um, I don't need 20 pages of, of chase rules. And I know that's become kind of a sticking point for criticism of, of the seventh edition rules, but, but honestly, it, I think it's a fair point. You know, it, it's kind of a, it feels very much like bloat. And, um, and I think that's, that's a problem in, in a lot of modern uh, games. Um, and when I look at Horror on the Orient Express, it's an enormous box and um, I, I don't know how much it really adds. Because when you go back and you look at some other camp, if you look at Masks of Nyarlathotep, um, it's actually a surprisingly small book. And yes, you can get the Masks of Nyarlathotep companion, which is a huge book, but you don't need it. It's it's all just extra fluff, you know. So it shows what it really requires to to do a, a basic um, campaign. And Masks of Nyarlathotep is probably one of the most famous campaigns and one of the most long-lasting role-playing supplements of all time. So. So that's kind of my approach, and um, that sound, by the way, that you'll you'll hear it on the recordings of the sessions as well. That's my chair. Um, that uh, whenever I move in it, it makes this noise, which reminds me, this last session um, was kind of a nightmare to record, or not to record, but to edit. Uh, I spent I don't know, probably nine hours uh, editing it. I'm not sure my players even know. I don't think they've ever listened to one of the episodes, but um, but I enjoy it. I, I enjoy cleaning it up, and, and when I edit, um, I actually remove a lot of things from the sessions that um, kind of detract from, I think, the, the flow of it. Uh, so it's not just a matter of removing coughs and, and sounds like that, which I try to do, but I don't, I'm not obsessive about my editing, but um, I just try to smooth out the, the process a little bit, remove uh, external sounds and echoes and stuff like that. But for this one, I did remove... Um, so so nice, let, me, let me dive into to talking through the session a little bit and how I, I felt like it flowed. So first of all, the players, um, they were on the, the, the ship and they had captured Henning and that's where we stopped last time. And so they followed up by... Uh, trying to figure out, well, what's going on here? And so they spent some time talking amongst themselves. I, I felt like they spent, they, the, the obvious thing was, let's go, talk, let's go talk to Henning. Let's go see what he knows and see if we can get anything out of him, right? Um, or just say, okay, we need to talk to the captain and get into the, the cabin here um, or more, or somebody else who they trust. Uh, and I think uh, of the people they trust, it's probably, it's probably more, um, to some extent, Starkweather, whom I think, you know, rightfully so, they... They have this, uh, uh, they don't want to talk too much to him because they think he's a little bit of a buffoon. Uh, and I hope to kind of soften that up a little bit um, before, before the end, shall we say. Um, so they, they um, oh, and, and this actually me umming uh, reminds me, that's the biggest problem when I'm editing this stuff. I um a lot. Uh, it's actually a big problem for me especially when I'm when I need to edit these sessions because it takes a long time and I, I hate the sound of me umming um, nevertheless so they spent some time trying to get into his his um, his room to search his things and to see whether any of the other people that he was sharing a room with might have been involved and stuff like that it, it, it dragged on a little bit and I maybe I should have pushed you know maybe I should have given them turlo just saying we should check his room um, but I don't want to be too pushy either. I, I do want to have them kind of try to uh, organically move through the story rather than being too pushy. I know what's available, but I don't want to push it, right? And that's such a, a common thing when it comes to pre-written scenarios and campaigns that it's very easy as a game master to, to just want to kind of blast through it because you know what's coming and you know what's necessary. But it, it's, it's such a fine trick to... Um, to try to imply to people what they should do versus um, what needs to be done uh, and versus what's just a waste of time. 
but it, it, it wasn't too bad. And then they wanted to go talk to Henning, which they did. And uh, in the campaign, I think it's kind of laid out in a way where once the captain gets involved, Henning is um, removed from uh, from the rest of the ship, and they can't talk to him anymore. And he'll he's just uh, to be handed over to the authorities in Australia. And I felt like that wasn't really if they want to go talk to him uh, and see if they can get anything out, I would be willing to give them some information if they play their cards right. But I felt like they, they didn't quite, right? They, they stepped up their game. Uh, uh, Magnus slapped him and like, kind of uh, tried to intimidate him a little bit. But um, I, I didn't feel like that was quite, um, that was quite right. I felt like the, the captain wouldn't accept that, but at the same time, I, I, in retrospect, I think maybe I should have allowed him to try to intimidate him and get some quick information out of him um, before I cut him off. But it's, it's fine. It, it leaves it a little bit mysterious. I think, though, the biggest problem I do have is that in the larger scheme of things, my players are not... They don't quite understand. They're not trying to piece together everything, right? Um, they they haven't asked a lot of questions about Lexington. They haven't. They know that Danforth is out there, and they assume that he's the one who's causing the sabotage. But they haven't really asked questions around how is he trying to do that? You know, who is heading to Danforth, or who was the guy Jeremy Polk, um, who um, sabotaged uh, 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 the dock? or who killed um, the original captain. They haven't really tried to piece these things together, and I've pushed a little bit. I did that in session five, which unfortunately is lost, where I tried to push a little bit to get them to, to start formulating some theories, just also because I want to know, because it informs how I play the situations out. Um, but, but they're not quite there, and I, I fear that that might be kind of a side effect of um, the linearity of the campaign, um, we'll see as we get further on. It, it might be, it might also be a side effect of the fact that we don't play quite often enough to, for them to kind of retain all the details. Um, so, so that's, um, that's something I'm keeping an eye on and I, this is an incredibly deep campaign in so many ways and especially in the second edition which is much more detailed than than the previous one was. I, it's actually one of the things I, I truly love about the second edition is how it, Beyond the Mountains of Madness, ties together, it, it, it's like the nucleus of um, the science fiction side of Lovecraft's uh, cosmos. Um, it ties together so many things um, that I, I think are kind of integral to to, to the mythos, um, including obviously the elder things in their city and so forth, but also the Maigo and the Shogoth and the creation of humanity and all of these things that, um, that kind of, I think, lay a foundation for any further adventures that, that my players, if we, if we go on to play other campaigns, I hope to have echoes of that, uh, of this campaign kind of go through all of those. And there's also, there's some other stuff, I'm not going to spoil it too much, I'm sure we'll get into it in, in further uh, future sessions, but there's, there's this whole new aspect um, in the second edition, both in terms of just the, the city has been expanded, um, uh, the, the whole mythology is much deeper, and uh, including stuff like the Piri Rays map, which was in session four. Um, the, the mythology of Antarctica has been expanded, but beyond that, the Shogoth uh, are as as a race as a as beings are are more deep, you know, in, which is strange, you know, for for a mass of tentacles and teeth uh, to be deep, but they they kind of are, and they they have this worship and they have guards and all this stuff, and it, it, I hope it'll come into play, and and and, um, and that once you know five years from now when we're done with this campaign at the speed that we're going if we play something else where where these uh, um, some of this stuff comes into play that I can really draw on their their old um, the echoes of, of this old game the problem there though is again it how much do they actually remember um, I'm so deeply involved with this campaign I've I've read I don't know how many pages of, of stuff by now um, 
and, and prepared so many things. I've edited all the sessions. I've listened to many of the sessions more than, more than once, more than even just editing it. And I've read Pym, I've read At the Mountains of Madness, I've read the Beyond the Mountains of Madness, both first and second edition. I'm reading the second edition again. I've got the German edition. I've got so many things, like all these props that I've built and all this stuff. I'm so far into this world. I, and it's, it's actually really, this is kind of a, a flow of consciousness, uh, flow of consciousness a flow that I'm, I'm, <laughs> I mean, so I'm going a little off, off the track, but um, the, whenever we have these scenes, and it, it came into play in session six, um, I've spent so much time in this world, I'm so familiar with everything, I know the Gabrielle fairly well. I, I can't necessarily tell you what's in the various holes, but I, I can visualize what the ship looks like. Uh, I know exactly what what the scenes look like when they're playing out you know when they're in session six when they were um going to the hold in the middle of the storm at night i knew exactly what that looked like and it's such a for me it's that's part of why i play these games it's it's a narrative it's a narrative um, um what's the word here like i i get a lot of pleasure out of of just the the aesthetics of it both in terms of um, the overall narrative of the, the, the story, but also in the actions and in how it plays out and, and the, the, the danger and the reality of it, um, you know, as, as, as far as it goes for a role-playing game. And so, so let's talk a little bit about, um, about this session. So I talked at the top of, of, the, um, of this debrief about uh, Call of Cthulhu versus Trail of Cthulhu. Um, I I really like Trail of Cthulhu. I think it's a very it, just overall as a line as a game, it's phenomenal how well it's produced. And I love the art style of um, uh, what's his name? Sh I think his name is Jerome Huygenin or something like that. I, I'm I'm completely in love with his. I think it's it's the best art style in any role playing game that I've ever bought. Um, including stuff like the One Ring, which is is consistently good, but um, I think the Jerome's style just so invokes um, a distant past, uh, mystery, uh, danger, you know, distant dark places, uh, tombs, giant rock things and monsters and, and people with flashlights in, in, in suits going into underground caverns and stuff like that. I'm just, I'm completely sold by it. And it's one of the things that I, I really, I just want more of it, which is why I buy every single Trail of Cthulhu product that comes out, even if I don't, if it doesn't speak to me as a product, which something like Dreamhounds of Paris, it's not, it doesn't immediately speak to me because it's it's not quite I'm not familiar enough with it maybe or whatever it is um, but I'll buy it just to get um, a, a Pelgrain product and support them. Um, the problem of course is that Beyond the Mountains of Madness is, is a Call of Cthulhu campaign and so I have to transpose it into Trail of Cthulhu and there is an existing conversion document which I use that somebody else wrote and it covers a lot of things, but it's a little imprecise, which is fine. I mean, it's, it's what I would expect if I were to do something along those lines. Um, I'm not sure that I could necessarily find the time either to polish it off in the way that you would a published product. Nevertheless, you, you, you know, I find myself um, having to kind of do more prep work because of it. And it was interesting to do the prep work for the engine sequence because it's my first big sequence, and it's the first at the top of this game. I said, "Look, I'm I'm not protecting you guys anymore, and from here on out, you're you're going to face some shit that's going to be real. <laughs> Your characters are really going to be in danger. So, I'm not going to stop um, if if uh, if they're if they're in mortal danger. It's on you." And that was partially, obviously, like a, a psychological trick, um, to the extent that something like that works. I don't let my cat out. Wanna go out? Go out. Um, but I also just wanted to, because I knew that this sequence um, with the engines just traversing the ship in the storm was dangerous. 
and I wanted it to be dangerous. I didn't necessarily want to kill anyone. Uh, it would, it's kind of a, a, a boring way to go, but I wanted to, I wanted to impart on them the seriousness of their situation and the, how just getting to the Antarctic is, is dangerous, right? And I think that's the point of the sequence. Um, and I wanted it to also um, feel big, really be something that um, they would remember. Um, and I, I played, so I always stream sound effects and music in the background. And this time I had found some, some crashing waves and wind and, and stuff like that. So I played that and I've, I've edited that into the session this time. And I, I hope it works. It might be a little over the top, but that's, that's how it was like playing the, the session. I, I pumped it up in my ears because I wanted to, to kind of get, get into the mood of it. Uh, and to, the, to some, I think some parts of the, the sequence, it actually worked really well. Um, it, it gives you that sense of, it gives you remembering um, that you're in a sequence where there's a storm going on, rather than having to repeat it uh, again and again to, to kind of get the, the same effect. And actually, I found it really hard to find um, great storm sound effects. So that's, that's something that's kind of interesting. Um, it, most things are just these kind of, it's just a little wind, just a little waves, but it, it worked really well. And I, I highly suggest for anybody who's going to play this to do the same, whether you're playing it online or around a table, do the same. Uh, I played, I ran um, Digging Up a Dead God by uh, John Wick, which is, it's a scenario where a bunch of Nazi soldiers are uh, um, uncovering a temple in, I think it's a South American jungle um, in 1933 or something along those lines. And the, there's a soundtrack for that, which is, it's, I think it's like an hour long, um, just rainfall, it's just rain falling on leaves for an hour. And then in there, there's, um, at one point there's a dog barking. And he suggests uh, in the notes for this that you use that and just play it throughout. And when the dog barks, uh, use that as like that happens in game. You know, and then you can use it as something, I guess a game master, you can use it as something that actually happened and you can trigger a sequence with it or you can just have it be while well, the dog barks. It's a good, good, um, good scenario, by the way. It's, it's a little, it's very messy uh, in terms of how it's written and I, and the details are kind of as confounding to the players as they are to the game master, and, and you have to figure out a lot of the stuff on your own. Anyway, that's a tangent. But I really like the idea of having um, especially sequenced soundtracks. I don't think soundtracks um, or kind of sound effects work well for individual things. You know, I, I don't think it works well. The dragon attacks, press the dragon attack button. Rawr. Okay, the dragon attacks with its tail. Okay, play the dragon attacks with its tail button. I don't think that works very well at all. I think that's very artificial and, and you're breaking out of the kind of the narrative momentum of, um, of, of the, the moment. So, so that, don't, don't do that is my suggestion. But do have background noises that are um, appropriate to the weather in particular, I think is something that works really well. Um, to having, if you have engines and stuff like that. I, I look forward to actually being on the ice and just having a background noise that um, is just an Arctic wind, just quiet wind that's just running in the background at all times, kind of similar to what I have here. Um, because it, it kind of imparts something that you can tell people, but they won't necessarily pick up, which is your you're isolated, you're in the middle of nowhere, and the weather is not necessarily your friend. Um, so so that's, that's one, that's just my, my approach to this. And I do play music as well, and it's, it's hard, I think. Music is, is also one of those things where um, it can very easily distract if you try to make it too, um, um, if you use it too much in situ um, as a way to 
suddenly a guy jumps out from behind the door, play the, play the thrilling action music. It, it, it becomes a little artificial as well. And so I try to kind of sneak it in there sometimes. And, and my players know, and they, they, like you can hear in this session, uh, Jens asked for me to play some music and stuff. So, so as long as it's a dialogue that way, I think it works well. Anyway, um, what else, what else? So a couple of things, just mechanical things, you know, and I think mechanical things, it, I, I spoke a little bit about how I want to have it be my, my games to just flow as much as possible. I'm not against rules at all. I think some people are, you know, who go in for storytelling games are very much, very hardcore about it, and I'm, I'm certainly not. If you can hear a noise in the background, it's my washing machine. I, I, I like rules a lot. I think they, they provide you with a foundation that you can actually build tension with, uh, and especially in Trail of Cthulhu where you, you, know, you saw it in this session with the athletic skill um, and some of the other skills, preparedness and so forth, being a resource that you're going to run out of it. Uh, and so what are you going to do? How are you going to get out of this? Uh, and it, that is a little... That's kind of on the edge of, is that too artificial? Is it a little weird that you're resource managing to the, to the point that they were? And, and yes, I, I think to some extent, uh, it, it was a little too much maybe. And I, maybe I should have pushed a little harder to get them to just go. But then I might have killed them. Um, the, the, I was talking about the conversion document before and how it outlines some of how this sequence could work. And it does, but um, it's hard to get a good grasp of how many points are people actually going to spend on this. Um, and as a game master, obviously, we, we play the game in purest mode, and so the, the rule is essentially that I shouldn't be telling the players what the difficulty level is. But it's a little hard. <laughs> it's a little hardcore when when your player will die if, if they don't. And I augmented that rule as well. The, the rule originally was when you're moving from, from hold to hold, you roll athletics. And if you miss, then you better have preparedness to make sure that you're hooked up to the guide wire. But it doesn't say anything about, okay, so you do that once, and then what happens the second time? It doesn't say anything about you slip or you, and you hit your head. Like, so I had to kind of implement that. Um, and I think that worked pretty well. Um, and then I also give them the penalty of, okay, you're hooked up to the guide wire, and when you slip, you hit your, you, you, you take damage. And then I added the extra, and you don't move. Because um, I feel like that's fair. You failed the roll, you don't get to move. So potentially, you know, and, and people have, um, uh, people could knock themselves out on this um, and get into dire straits. So uh, that was kind of my on-the-fly solution to this. Um, to see, and, and really, um, I, I think I ran it a little wrong, because uh, the idea was you roll athletics to see whether you, you go from hold to hold, and if you miss it, you have to roll athletics again, and if you miss that, you go overboard, right? Or preparedness, and you're hooked up to the guide wire. Well, if you're hooked up to the guide wire, you're probably not going to go overboard. Uh, and so in the, in the heat of the moment, I didn't kind of catch on to the fact that, well, the solution then is to add the damage and ignore the other athletics role because they can't go overboard when they're on the guide wire. I don't know if this makes sense, but in short, I, I feel like I wasn't entirely clear on the mechanics of that situation um, in, in the moment, but I, I think it worked out pretty well and, and uh, the, effect with, the effect of it was the same uh, if, as if I'd been clear, but uh, I, I personally wasn't quite clear, so that's kind of a lesson to me. Um, I think the the seasickness rolls should have been split up. They should have had um, one when that storm first breaks out to see whether because um, I just took all three rolls straight at the at the top and that that's wrong because they all ended up with seasickness and they shouldn't have. Um, in reality, I should have done one and then had the storm and then they go down and whoever's seasick like can't necessarily go down and so forth and then after that do another one in the next storm to see if anybody else gets seasick. And so when they're on the Wallaroo, they're going to get, they're going to get hit by that. Um, um, that's, it wasn't specified in the conversion notes. Um, and uh, I, I feel like if I were to do it again, I would have 
I would have done it that way and then also have had the difficulties be hidden. Um, so so that's, that's one, one lesson learned. For anyone else who, who's going to run um, this with Trailer Cthulhu. What else? Um, at the opening of the engine sequence, I felt that um, it fell apart a little bit, the teamwork. The, some of the guys uh, heard the engine and got up and started doing things. And I, in my, in my head, I kind of forgot to fully walk through the situation, right? Because many times it's really easy to, to just skip, okay, what do you do? Good, you go and do that. But, but what else is going on? The, the, the superstructure of the ship is filled with people, um, and it's a crazy storm, so chances are that people are not sleeping. And chances are that Belcourt, who didn't hear the engine would have been up or would be woken up um, by the commotion, by, by the fact that the door is opened uh, onto the deck and so forth. And the result of that was that Belcour was just sitting in his bunk uh, for an hour <laughs> of game time, um, not doing anything. Why? Because no one told him. And, and obviously it's also a little bit on Tom. Um, that he, he didn't kind of ask, well, do I hear anything? Because I guess he didn't want to die. Um, I, I should have I kind of walked through what's happening, who's, who's there, you know. And that's one thing that I'm a little vague on. I'm a little vague on who's in which uh, parts of which rooms. And, um, and in situations like this, I think that, that really can add some texture. So either I have to do that or maybe... Yeah, I guess, I guess I have to do that. They're almost done with the ship, so it's not as important now as it was. But, but that's one thing to keep in mind. It's a lot of work to try to allocate where everybody is, because I actually thought about it earlier. Uh, but I just decided against it. You know where Starkweather is. You know where Moore is. But beyond that, you know, it's, it's just sectioned out. I know where the players are, um, although uh, I can't remember right now. But it, it's, those are the details that, that you, you really get a lot of mileage out of in situations like that. Anyway, and also, I should have forced harder um, to force decisions when they were under pressure. I let them kind of just talk it out, and, and Jens kind of came up with this point tracking system, and he was, he had, a, I think essentially he had a spreadsheet <laughs> at one point, um, and uh, that I think was a little bit too lax on my part. Um, when, when your players are in situations like that, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily push them too hard, but I, I do think that, okay, I'm going to need a decision um, is, is one way to kind of up the ante. And the trick here, of course, was that I was actually in the middle of it. I started thinking, okay, what if one of them actually dies here? Because I told them I would kill them if, if, um, if they were unlucky. So um, I, I, guess, I guess I wasn't fully serious about that. Um, what else? I so we, we had four players and of those Belcour was in bed and Dr. Altmaier didn't have any athletics and he almost went out he, he would have been in a bad bad way and he couldn't have helped out in any like meaningful way uh, I think uh, well I guess he could have tied the engine down if he got down there but um, so we only had two players and so I had to feed them some more athletics points and I did that by giving them some NPCs I just grabbed NPCs out of thin air. Luckily, the NPCs are um, in the conversion document, so you can actually, I, I went there and I just quickly found them. So thank you so much to whoever wrote that. It, it's, it's a lot of help. I would have guessed, I would have just given some values if, if it wasn't there, but um, it's nice to have it. I didn't consider what would happen if one of the NPCs was washed overboard. Uh, I probably should have. <laughs> Um, I guess I could have fudged the role, but I, I didn't even think about it when I, when I put them in harm's way. So, so that's worth keeping in mind as well. So if you're going to run this, um, first of all, if you're running it in Trail of Cthulhu, um, I suggest you do athletics role to go between hulls. I put the difficulty at five and a preparedness to have them be on the guideline, uh, guide wire. Um, or an athletics role again, if they fail that first one, to stay uh, on the ship. Uh, and that way, I went, I went over a little bit 
four, but that way, you, and then you give them damage. I just gave them one d six. I think you could up it a little bit if you wanted to, um, but it, it's that can be devastating, you know, because you get a couple of those that are a little high and you're hurt. So, so that's I think that's a good way to deal with it. And then once you get into the hole. Um, it's about capturing the engines. And I think that played out fairly well. Um, I actually, in retrospect, I think the mechanic of every five rounds, um, something happens. I think that could be pulled onto the deck as well. And so like every X rounds, and maybe it's five, I, don't, I think that's a little much, but every X rounds, a giant wave, like the, the ship goes into the, th the throth um, and uh, a giant wave washes over the ship, and so it's harder, you know, so you can really amp it up and, and put people in harm's way if you're so inclined. Um, it plays well in my mind, uh, in my opinion, as a as a good example of how um, to, to really utilize uh, people's skills. Um, it's, it becomes a little resource management-like, and that's maybe my, my biggest regret um, of this sequence is that Jens became the guy who, who told people what points to spend and whatnot, which, honestly, people should figure that out themselves. You know? But there are NPCs involved and everything, and so it, it's fine. Um, I just, I, in, in, in the future, I, maybe if you had more players that were all involved, it would be a little bit less um, mechanical, um, is my, my impression. So what else? Well, I mean, overall, I, I thought that worked really well. It was it was a thrilling sequence to go through. It took about an hour and a half, I think. Um, it was a it was a good it's a good way to kind of show how the elements can can really screw around with you. And I think when they get to the Antarctic, um, it's it's good to keep in mind, you know that. If there's an ice storm, it'll have effect. Um, and moving around outside, uh, you know, you you're you're likely to trip and fall and all that kind of stuff. Um, beyond that, you know, I think we skipped the Australia chapter. By the way, um, I I um, it's in in the second edition. It's optional. Uh, it's written optional and. Um, even in the first edition, I, it, it, there was nothing there that you really need to run. I think it's, unless your players are, are really into that kind of role playing, and, and I guess some people are, I think it's worth skipping it. Um, we spend maybe 15, 20 minutes on it uh, overall, just having people kind of, well, what do you do? I think Jens had a great, uh, a great um, uh, moment there where he was uh, talking about this Norwegian church and and, and stuff like that. And I would kind of wish I had more to, to give him for that, because uh, I thought that was a great moment. Um, and it was also a moment to kind of have people uh, remember that they have loved ones and whatnot back home. Um, I'm not sure. I think I might have made a, a little tactical error there by when Dr. Altmaier um, called home to talk to his daughter, my thinking was that it was more heartbreaking if she, he couldn't get in touch with her, right? Um, that's kind of how I could see a scene like that play out in the movie. The guy walks up to the phone and he's like, okay, you guys uh, just go ahead, I'm gonna go call my daughter. And he calls and like he, uh, he can't get through. I thought that could work really well, but in retrospect, you know, I, I think having had, because we haven't had any scenes with that daughter, so we don't, it, it, there's no weight there and, and in, in retrospect, I would have actually played that out just a little bit um, to get to get some weight onto his character, uh, to give him some depth and, and stuff like that. But it doesn't affect the game too much. Uh, but it, it it's one of those small regrets. What else? Nobody's read uh, Arthur Gordon Pym. That comes as no surprise, I guess. Um, it's a shame because they would have begun asking questions about, hey, wait a minute, what's about this name Redenburg? There's a Redenburg uh, on our ship. There's two different Redenbergs in the Pym book, 
And if they had read the articles for Lexington's uh, father's uh, death, they would have found that there's a Redenberg there. And these are the kinds of things that my players never pick up. <laughs> uh, these are the kinds of things also that, that Beyond the Mountains of Madness as a campaign has in, in, in uh, throves. And it's, I, that's one of the things I love because it's, it's just there. But it's not even mentioned in the book, the fact that the Captain Redenberg shares the name of these other characters. Um, so, so thankfully, you know, because that means I don't have to, um, to deal with that. Because if, if they start asking questions about it, you know, <laughs> you've gotta, you have to figure out how to deal with it. But it's, it would be a nice way to kind of build their paranoia a little bit. Um, what else? There's a lot of reading out loud. In, um, in these chapters, um, I like it a lot. I think these travel descriptions are actually phenomenal. Uh, I really enjoy them, and I think the players do too. I think it gives a lot of texture and uh, a lot of sense of a journey, which otherwise you know, would be just me kind of pulling out some, some ideas about how it might work, rather than these really well-written and fleshed out travel descriptions. Um, so, so I enjoy them. I think there's there's a lot of it, though, you know, especially in session five and six, and then also in the next one, and to some extent maybe the one after that. So, so going from New York through Panama, and then the line ceremony, and then you get the sabotage thing, right? And then then you go to Australia, and then you you leave Australia, and then you go through the storm, and then you get the engine sequence, and then after that you get a, a long travel description um, to go to the Wallaroo and after that um, and that's a fairly short sequence and then after that you, you go to the Ross Ice Shelf but there's a lot of travel description there of like uh, dynamiting ice and stuff I, and then after that even there's a lot of travel description about unloading the ship getting it onto the to the Ross Ice Shelf and hearing the call from the Lexington camp and going there until you get to, to play again. It, it's a lot. Uh, and it's, it's one of the things I was the most kind of fearful of um, ahead of the, the game. Um, I think the next time I might be a little concerned about how that's going to play out. Um, it, the game calms down a lot. It, we had... I mean, I think that this last session was was a good example of a session where it's just all action. You know, it's it's one of those when you watch a TV show. This is, was one of those episodes that was different from the other ones for the most part. I, I I will always look back at this section and forget about the Henning stuff and just remember the engine sequence. And so it's it's a large change to get to the ice and go through all of that stuff. And then of course the ice cracks and there's some stuff there, but I'm not sure how yet I'm going to play that out whether. I'm actually gonna play it out in a large sequence. I don't think so, um, or whether um, uh, we're actually instead gonna just either read through it or just have like a, a few small uh, individual scenes or something. Um, Acacia's camp. You know, I'm not sure how to play that out. Um, I think. It's tricky. I'm not sure how my players are gonna um, attack it. Not attack the camp, but, but the situation. Are they gonna know to talk to people to try to figure out what's been going on? Are they gonna be lured in by that mystery? Um, I think the important thing here is um, the two expeditions are gonna combine and to do that in a way that feels natural and not too pushy. That's a little tricky. Uh, I don't think my players really uh, think that uh, Lexington has done anything um, with regards to like the um, the sabotage or anything like that. And that's kind of what the campaign is is trying to sell is that uh, you can't trust her. But they haven't done a lot of uh, looking into to her uh, past. Hold on a second. Um, so they don't know that she has these like extreme political uh, 
tendencies and stuff, which is also, by the way, a slightly undersold um, part of the campaign. I guess the biggest the biggest reason that it's there is so that she's willing to sign up with the Germans. Um, but I'm, yeah, I guess that's the reason. I guess it's, it's probably fine. Uh, but they don't really know that, uh, my players. So, so the question is what they're going to do. It's up to me to introduce them to certain characters uh, there that are going to have an influence on the story going forward. And um, yeah, that'll be a little slow, I guess. I look forward to seeing how much time that's actually going to take up. I'm going to try and rush, not rush it, but but go through it as fast as I feel like I can I can go without kind of losing anything, because I I do feel like it's it's really less important, and and trying to solve that situation is not. Like, there's nothing to solve. The people went crazy and they set fire to some tents and there's nothing you can solve. Maybe you can get an idea that there's something fishy going on, but I mean, guess what? Something fishy is already going on. Which reminds me, my players, one of the players asked about the Lexington expedition and whether they had any news about it. And I was like, well, I remember it actually because I'd read it just the night before that um, the one of the things that they're told when they're in the camp um, later is, um, so in, in the next session, is that a guy jumped overboard and, and was, was drowned. And uh, that happened before they arrived, the Lexington's Tallahassee arrived in New Zealand. So I, I figured, well, that's, that seems newsworthy and they probably, sh you know, I've heard about that. And I feel like, I always feel bad when when a player shows initiative and, and kind of interest and to tell them nothing. Um, you know, because in a way the Tallahassee is supposed to remain mysterious. But honestly, my my sense is that they don't have any, like their interest in Lexington is pretty, pretty low. Um, to my chagrin, I guess. But So I, it didn't really hurt, I thought, to, to tell them that somebody had died and just not give them much more information than that. Um, and then, then that'll kind of that'll give them some sense that when they get to the camp in the next session, hopefully, um, there's going to be some sense that the story is like a larger ongoing story, and that they heard about it before and stuff like that. So yeah, it'll be interesting. I I'm looking forward to getting through the next session. I I think the Wallaroo is a great little side adventure. I think the the entire trip and unloading of equipment and the cracking of the ice and all that stuff is like, yeah, we just kind of need to go through it. It's not, I don't think it's super interesting and um, it feels like we've done a lot of journeying already. You know, we're, we're five sessions in and it's, it's all, it's all been about this, this just getting there. Um, so in a way it's going to be nice to get there, but on the other hand, let's just get it over with. And then hopefully we get to the camp and I hope we can run through the entire camp and have the two expeditions join up so that in session seven, we're gonna go to Lakes Camp. That's my hope. Um, but again, um, I'm gonna try and not push it too hard, but put a little bit more pressure on, on them. Um, I think in, in overall, you know, in terms of role playing, it's one of the things that it's frustrating as a player when you're, when you don't, feel like there's a lot of momentum and you're not sure what to do to create momentum you know you you want to you want to make actions you know you want to do things that that push the story forward and, and and kind of make the whole thing go or at least um if if this if it's not about if the scene's not about making the story go forward at least kind of be able to add some texture but when you're when you're just sitting around kind of waiting for um, essentially waiting for something to happen because you can't figure it out, then it's a little bit of a letdown. At least um, that, that's that's actually for me. I think it's one of the one of the the worst parts of of, uh, of a game is when when it, it just slows to a crawl because you you lose the momentum.
So I think that's about it for my thoughts on this session. Um, I realize these debriefs are a little rambling, but I, I kind of just push them in whenever I can find a little bit of time. My wife is out training for a marathon right now, so it gave me a chance to sit down and just kind of record my thoughts. And, um, you know, again, these, this, the debriefs are not supposed to be uh, riveting. <laughs> They're supposed to be uh, for myself in a way, and also maybe for my players when, when, when we're done with this. I, I doubt that they, they're ever going to listen to this, but um, that way my thoughts about how this thing actually progressed are captured. And, and especially, I think, for, um, for other game masters who want to pick up Beyond the Mountains of Agnes um, and run it, I think it's a phenomenal campaign. I, I really, especially the second edition, and I hope that Chaosium um, puts out an English version of it uh, sooner rather than later, um, especially because I have a German version and I, I, have, I can't parse it. So that's my wife. Um, I'm going to stop and, and come.